Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Turn to John chapter 10. This morning we'll be in John chapter 10, continuing our series uh, that you may believe as we study through the book of John together. We've invited each of us to um, read along with us throughout the week, and so hopefully uh, a few of you, many of you have read through John 10 this week, multiple times for some of you, one time a few verses for some of you this week, though, that you're beginning this journey of, of reading the word together. Um, we love the gathering. We love that we get to do this, but if it only stays here, then we've missed the point. If we're only coming in here to huddle, we're not going out there to run plays, and we're never going to win the game. So it's not just enough to come to the huddle. We're going to have to start running our plays, and so I want to invite you into that journey with us. And I know that for many of us, reading is not a thing that we enjoy. Uh, the average man uh, after high school will read one entire book the rest of his life. So I understand that for many of us, we don't want to read. You just, we don't want to. Uh, but What's great about 2021 is there are ways you can read without even having to read. You can read by having somebody read it to you, which sounds amazing. And so you can do that on your commute. And so different Bible apps to help you do that. We want to encourage you just to read along uh, this study of John with us together. This whole series is based from John chapter 20, where uh, John tells us that he wrote this gospel. He chose these stories, these perspectives, this account of Jesus so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Nobody calls him Mr. Christ. This is, it means the anointed one or the Messiah. Uh, so this is, this is what John wants us to know, is that he is the Messiah. And that by believing, you might have life in his name. So John talks about life a ton in his, in his book. So this morning, what I wanna do is I wanna, we're gonna go to John 10. We're gonna read about 11 verses there. Then I wanna take us back to the Old Testament, to Ezekiel chapter 34, And then from there, I want to move us uh, into a pretty well-known psalm, and then we'll come back to John 10. The hope for me this morning is I want to give us an overview of what is actually being said in this passage. For many of us, because we're not Jewish, we aren't Israelites, we weren't raised under that same kind of tutelage, we, we miss some allusions that Jesus makes in Scripture, which is why we need the Holy Spirit, and we need people who have studied to illuminate that to us. And so I want to do that for us um, this morning. Uh, we, We have three kids, Meredith and I do, and our youngest... At this point, she's four. She'll be five in a couple of weeks. And uh, she has this thing at night every once in a while where she'll just wake up hysterical. It's not quite a night terror, but she wakes up to where no one actually knows. She doesn't know what's going on. She thinks she knows what's going on. We don't know what's going on. And she'll wake up and she's telling me that she's so sad because she couldn't watch YouTube today or because what, what am I gonna do tomorrow? I don't have school. And whatever it is that's happening for her, it's happening in this weird space between her consciousness and her subconscious. So she's kind of there, but she's kind of not there. Anybody have that experience with your kids or with a spouse? That's fine too. Uh, but there are these moments for her where she's, she's asleep, but she's also awake, but reality hasn't set in yet for her. And so then you never know if it's gonna take an hour, 30 minutes, 10 minutes, however long it takes for her to kind of just settle back down. So we pray and we sing over her and try to just get her um, to rest and go back to sleep. But that's, that's Landry, that's how she experiences a lot of times at night for us. So I say it to say this, um, I heard a sermon a few weeks ago that referenced a documentary called Sheep Among Wolves. Right now on, in the global, on the globe, in the world, 
the fastest growing Christian churches are in Iran. And they're all underground. They're not meeting above ground. There's penalty, literal persecution. They're not, you'll get made fun of, not, you won't be able to gather, literal persecution that you will die if you claim the name of Jesus. So in Iran is the fastest growing churches. The church growth movement is growing the fastest in Iran of all places. So I watched this documentary this weekend and it's, uh, it's powerful, but it's basically it's, it's the Iranians talking about how they disciple people. And there was a couple um, who had come to faith in Jesus and I think due to safety concerns moved to the US. And there's this part in this interview where um, they're, they're talking to this couple, and this is, this is what is, is said there. After living in America for a while, the wife begged her husband to return to their home country of Iran. He thought she was out of her mind. He said, who wants to go back to Iran under all sorts of oppression, where the sharing of your faith could bring the end of your life, or brutal incarceration, or rape, or all sorts of horrible things? But she insisted, explaining... There is a satanic lullaby here in America. All the Christians are sleepy, and I'm feeling sleepy. This Iranian woman, who knows that if she goes back, it's impending doom for her. And she would rather, she would rather, for the sake of her faith, for the sake of her relationship with Jesus, live in Iran than to live in America. Why? Because she says there is a satanic lullaby here in America. Now, I don't want to um, just bash the West and bash America. I'm not here to do that. But what's happened for many of us in America is that we, like Landry, um, we have been startled awake from time to time. Uh, the enemy has made himself known. We've been startled awake from our sleepiness, awake from our um, just lackadaisical attitude towards faith. And we'll have those moments on a Sunday morning. We'll have them uh, at a worship service or a conference we go to, and we're startled awake. And what this lady is saying is, but there's something over the West. There's this satanic lullaby that begins to ease and say, hey, shh, back to sleep. Everything's okay. Back to sleep. Don't wake up. Back to sleep. Shh. And with Landry, what happens for us is we go on this mad search and we're trying to figure out why is she awake tonight? What, what happened? So we pull the comforter back. Maybe she's too hot, so we try to make her more comfortable. Maybe she's, well, no, no, maybe she's too cold, so we put the comforter back on. And then it's, maybe she needs water. And uh, Landry's a diva, so she needs ice in her water. She can't just have water. She's got to have ice in her water, so then we have to get ice in the water. And then we're running through, what did she eat tonight? Did she, is it something that she's eaten? Is there other, all kinds of these things that we're trying to figure out. How do we pacify her? How do we figure out the issue so that she goes back to sleep? And for many of us, this is what happens for us. When we're startled awake by the enemy, we're startled awake to our own um, depravity, our own lackadaisical attitude towards faith, we try to figure out, well, what is it that startled me awake? Maybe I'm just this. Maybe I'm discontent at work. Maybe I need to make more money. Maybe my marriage is not where it needs to be. Maybe I need better friends. Maybe I need to listen to different music. Maybe I, and then it's the enemy, Satan, the enemy is just saying, shh, back to sleep, back to sleep. It's gonna be fine. It's gonna be fine. Just, just go back to sleep, and when you wake up, everything is going to be fine. In the typical Western church culture, we pursue comfort, we pursue pacifying whatever it is that has startled us awake. 
And so the enemy is lurking and he's moving. And when we're startled awake from our sleep, when, when the spirit comes and awakens us, we often run to, okay, but what's gonna get us back to sleep? Instead of staying awake, we wanna go back to sleep. And the typical Western church culture is oriented around our comfort and ease. And we call it our mission statement. And so we have particular language that we use and we try to make everything sound better than it actually is. And we're just being lulled back to sleep even in our churches. John 10.10 is one of the most popular verses in scripture. But like what happens to popular verses in scripture is they're only popular because we pull them out of context. They're only popular because we've made them say something they don't actually say. And so we've got a marketing team around the Bible. And so we're saying, this is what's going to make it sound cool. This is going to draw people in. And John 10.10, here's what we know about John 10.10. We know this part of the verse. I came, Jesus came, that you, that we, that they may have life and have it abundantly or have it in full. You might have a full life. This is what we know of John 10.10. We know, according to John 10.10, according to this context, out of context verse that Jesus' whole existence was to give us abundant life. And so Jesus came that we might be comfortable. Jesus came that we might have a life of ease. Jesus came that we might have uh, money in our bank account. We might have 2.5 children and a white picket fence and a Volvo in the garage. This is, this is what we think. When we read John 10:10 10, 10 out of context, the Western church has latched onto this. And so we market this to the world saying, hey, if you come to Jesus, you're gonna have life and you're gonna have it to the full. Completely missing the first half of John 10.10, 10, which says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I, Jesus, have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. You see, in the Western church, we love the idea of abundant life but we fail to acknowledge there is an enemy, not seeking uh, to make you poor, not seeking uh, to, to ruin um, your 501 or ruin your 401k, not, not that. There is an enemy who's seeking to steal and kill and destroy. And he'll often do it through comfort and through ease. We have an enemy. The church in Iran, they know they have an enemy. Do we know we have an enemy? And the enemy is not a political party. The enemy is not a president. The enemy is uh, not Hollywood. We have a real enemy who is smart and strategic, and he is patient. And he has tailor-made his robbery. He has tailor-made his assaults on us based on us and our strengths and our weaknesses. But the truth is, he's also limited. He's, he stands no chance against the king of kings. And yet, when the enemy startles us, when we are awakened from our slumber, we don't run to the king of kings. We don't run to the father. We run to whatever pacifies us and gets us back to sleep. In John chapter 10, Jesus is going to go after the Pharisees because... They were meant to lead the people of God to the Father. They were meant to lead the people of God in the war against the enemy. But instead, they've been co-opted by the enemy. Remember earlier in John, Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. They've been taken captive 
from the King of kings and Lord of lords, and now the enemy has taken them under his wing, and they've become useful to him. So Jesus now, he's done pretending, he's done playing games with the Pharisees, and he's going to let them have it. As a church, we cannot be like the rest of the Western church. We cannot be about comfort and ease and air conditioning and easy ways to do certain things and to get to certain places and know certain people. That's not how we live. We have a war on our hands and we can't afford to play church. We can't afford to play country club church. We can't afford to pay our dues and get what we want. This is not what we're called to be. Let's go to John chapter 10 and we're gonna look at how Jesus handles this situation Uh, this morning. Remember John chapter nine, Jesus heals a blind man and then he finds himself in front of the Pharisees and he's like, hey, uh, I once was blind, but now I see what's your problem. Has this whole conversation. But the Pharisees, Jesus at the end of it says, you're the blind ones. You say you can see, but you're actually blind. And because of that, your guilt remains. He continues in John 10. There's no break here, no sundown to sunset. It's a continuation of John chapter nine. John 10 verse one. Truly, truly, whenever Jesus says truly, truly, we need to pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Don't look at verse 6. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them, which seems like could be um, all over the book of John. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees had no idea what Jesus was talking about. Jesus is gonna use the analogy of a shepherd. And he's not doing that randomly. This has been a continuation of Old Testament um, metaphor from from the beginning of of their faith. This has been understanding for them. And not just religious, it's also moved into some political understanding of what it means to be a shepherd. And there's probably shepherds around and all that is happening there. But Jesus is making the point to the Pharisees. He speaks of a sheepfold. So there would be, at this time, there would have been out in some pasture land. There would have been a number of shepherds who would have brought their sheep out. And for certain periods of of the year, they would share a sheepfold. And this sheepfold would be run by a gatekeeper. And the gatekeeper knew what shepherds had sheep in there. And so he would let certain shepherds in. They would call their sheep. Sometimes there was a sound they would make. Sometimes he would literally call them by name. But all the sheep needed to know was the sound of their voice. And the sheep, the shepherds would enter through the door and then they would say, call their sheep and their sheep would follow them and they would go to and fro. But there were thieves and robbers. There were those who were not shepherds and they would try to break in, but they couldn't get through the gate because the gatekeeper was there. So they would climb the fence or they would climb the wall or go down the, um, down the cliffside into wherever the sheepfold was. And they would try to steal the sheep from the sheepfold. And Jesus is making the point, but they don't leave because true sheep know the voice of their shepherd. And if you're truly a shepherd, you go in through the door. You don't have to climb in, you go in through the door. But they don't quite understand what's happening. So then Jesus changes the metaphor a bit in verse seven. So again, Jesus said to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So now he shifts metaphors. It's going to be confusing for us, but he's going to change the tactic a bit. So now when a shepherd would take his sheep out into the pasture land, out into the wilderness to eat or whenever they were on a journey, a shepherd, a nomadic shepherd, would make some kind of a sheepfold out of whatever he could find. But obviously he can't find hinges, can't make a door, can't make a gate. And so a nomadic shepherd would become the door of that sheepfold. And he would literally lay down, he would lay his life down as the door of that sheepfold. So he's saying, you didn't get the first thing that you're the thief. You're the one who's, who's trying to come in and steal. You're trying to steal these sheep. Okay, you don't get that. Here's the next one. I'm the door of the sheep. Then verse eight. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the way in for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and we'll go in and out and find pasture. That's a Jewish euphemism for freedom. If they come in through me, they're gonna find freedom. He's making the point that there's no freedom to be found in the legalistic side of the Pharisees. Verse 10, the thief, you're thieves, you are robbers, but there is a thief. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. They will go in and out and find pasture. I am the good shepherd. Now he switches metaphors again. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus continues in John 10, just letting the Pharisees have it through metaphor, but letting them understand that they aren't who they claim to be. They aren't good shepherds. They haven't been caring for the people of God. In fact, they are more like thieves and robbers. And they are led by the thief who is only here to steal and kill and destroy. And what they have missed, because again, when Jesus says, you are of, the father, of your father, the devil, what they've missed is they're no longer following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've now changed alliances and they don't even understand what's happened. But in this entire passage, Jesus refers to shepherds. And what's meant to happen for these Pharisees, it's supposed to, Jesus trying to get them to remember back to some Old Testament prophecies about shepherds. This is not a new problem for the Jews, for the Israelites. It's not a new problem for them. Historically, they've had bad shepherds. They've had bad leaders people who have been co-opted by the enemy and are now leading the people of God astray. This is not new for them. And if they were who they say they were, if they really knew the Old Testament, they knew of the prophets, they knew of Ezekiel, they would knew, know what Jesus is saying. So if you would turn, go ahead and turn to Ezekiel chapter 34 in your Bible or type it into your device, Ezekiel 34. Again, this is not the first time that... Uh, Jewish shepherds have been called out by God. As a rule, people are the sheep. Now, we could do a whole sermon of how dumb sheep are, how they follow whatever's in front of them. That's a whole thing. And I don't, listen, we've, we've, we've got enough bad news. I don't need to keep piling on the fact that we're all idiots. I don't need to do that. But as a sheep, as sheep, we are prone to wander and we are desperate for somebody to follow. We are wired that way. I know we all want to be big and bad and pretend like, I don't need to follow anybody. I'm my own man. No, you're not. 
No, we're not. No, we're not. You're like, you're like the middle school girl who thinks she's gonna be so different by being just like everybody else who's different. No, you're not. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be goth so that nobody, so that I can rage against, this, against the machine. I'm gonna, I'm gonna push back against whatever they say I'm gonna be, so I'm gonna be gothic. Me and my 75 friends who are gothic and the ones that I've found on, on TikTok, we're all gonna be gothic together, so we're gonna be so different, just like each other. We are, as a rule, people are looking for someone to follow. We like to pretend we're strong and independent, but we are not. We are not. Pay attention. We're all being discipled by something. Pay attention. What are you being discipled by? So the enemy has um, two major chess pieces at his disposal. Particularly in uh, developed countries, developed cultures, he has two major chess pieces. And this is not something that we only see in our culture. We've seen this from, from the Bible. Biblically, we see this to be true. There are two major chess pieces the enemy uses. One is political power. He likes to leverage political power. Secondly, the enemy uses religious institutions. This is, these are his two primary pieces that he moves all over the board to try to catch Jesus, to catch God in a checkmate. He uses uh, political power and he uses religious institutions. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. We see nations come in, political powers come in to overtake the people of God. We see the problem coming from within in the Old and New Testament. There are wolves in sheep's clothing inside of religious institutions. The major problem happens when the political power and the religious institution get in bed with one another, then the enemy has power when that begins to happen. When he can get the political powers to fall in love with religious institution or religious institution to fall in love with political power and the two get in bed together, we, it leads to the downfall of a society. Look at your Old Testament. Look at your Old Testament. Whenever the people of God, the Israelites would feel dis uncomfortable, would feel discontent, and a political power were to come and say, hey, but I can help you with that. I can help you. Or they would come and Egypt comes in, overtakes them, puts the Israelites in slavery. They thrive there. The Israelites are set free. And the Israelites, the religious institutions, says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But wasn't it better back in Egypt? Because at least there we had pots of meat to eat. We see it happen towards the New Testament when Rome and the religious institution get in bed with one another. We see the downfall of a society. We see it happen over and over and over again. So God in the Old Testament and into the New Testament is keen on keeping those two things out of the hands of the enemy. He is predisposed to keeping those two things out of the hands of the enemy. But this is why we're so, we're so prone to follow leaders this is why the enemy loves these two institutions, because they're made of leaders. The enemy loves the political power because we're so desperate to follow a leader. We will follow political power because they come across bold, they come across strong, they seem to be after our best interests, and so we begin to follow them. Or he'll leverage the religious institution who is supposed to be godly shepherds, supposed to be people leading us in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and so then we fall under their leadership. We're so desperate to be led that we don't even background check our leaders. We don't care. We don't care what they're about and what they're leading us in. We're just so enamored by their charisma. 
So we want political and religious leaders to be our Messiah, but we also have a distorted view of what it means to be free. So we think the political power is gonna bring us freedom or the religious institution is going to bring us freedom. A denomination will never bring you freedom. A political party will never bring you freedom. It's only through the Messiah. So in John 10, Jesus is stirring up uh, prophetic imagery and language and learnings in the minds of the Pharisees. We go to Ezekiel chapter 34. The people of God have been co-opted by a political power who has then brought in religious institutions. And the kings who were appointed by God have found themselves seeking their own gain instead of caring for the sheep of of the flock of God. This is happening in Ezekiel 34. And so God commissions the prophet Ezekiel to pronounce some judgment, but to also bring hope. Ezekiel 34, look at verse, starting in verse one. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel saying, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, to the religious leaders of Israel, say to them, thus says the Lord God, ah, the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat or you eat the fat ones, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. You are exploiting the sheep. You are exploiting the people of God. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. Jesus is speaking to the shepherds of Israel. The religious and some political leaders have gotten in bed with one another and he's saying, you've missed the point of shepherding and you're, you're hurting my people. You're only here to, to feed yourself, to clothe yourself. You're exploiting them for what they have to offer you so that you can clothe and feed yourself. And sure, we see that in, in prosperity gospel kind of movements. We see, see it in pastors trying to buy planes. Sure, we see all of that. You know, we also see it when uh, religious leaders are leveraging people to gain fame and popularity that's supposed to soothe some kind of insecurity in their soul. It's not just financial. Sometimes it's emotional. Sometimes it's because daddy didn't affirm them enough and now political leaders have risen and they're desperate for the affirmation of their people. But they're exploiting the sheep. Verse five, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. The sheep looked for a hill to climb. They looked for a hill to die on. They looked for things that they thought would give them um, some reason to exist, some cause bigger than themselves. And they looked for hills to die on. They looked for mountains. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Verse seven, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep 
but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. I will require my sheep at their hand and I will put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that there may not be food for them. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. If you can't do it right, I'll come down and do it for you. You are leading my sheep to be slaughtered. You're leading my sheep to be eaten by the wolves and by the wild beasts because you've stopped caring for them and you've started exploiting them for your own gain. And because of that, I'm coming. I'll be the shepherd. I will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. You want a mountain to die on? You want a hill to die? I'm gonna feed them here. I'm gonna feed them on the hill that matters. By the ravines on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep, of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Doesn't sound like sweet, cuddly little shepherd boy that we see at Easter, does it? God is saying to the religious leaders who are meant to care for his people, you've blown it. You had one job, care for my people, feed the sheep and protect them. And instead of that, the enemy had co-opted the shepherds of Israel in such a way that, that the enemy was using them as pawns to accomplish his evil schemes. And so God, like he does, says, fine, then I'll come rescue him. You haven't bound up the injured. You've kicked those who are already down. You haven't uh, helped and found those who are lost. You haven't sought those who have strayed. I'll come do it. I've asked you to do this. I haven't asked you to cast judgment. I haven't asked you to tell them, well, the only reason you're hurt is because you disobeyed the shepherd. I've asked you to bind them up. I've asked you to care for their wounds. I've asked you to restore them. So now I'm, I'm coming. I am the shepherd. So what Jesus is intending in John 10 is to make the Pharisees understand, no, 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 you're not the good shepherd. You're the shepherds from Ezekiel 34. It's come full circle. You have become the shepherds who are scattering the people of God. You refuse to bind them up when they're injured. You refuse to see them as sheep. You refuse to care for them and to protect them. And you're just feeding them to the wild beasts. They're scattered, looking for something, looking for pasture land, looking for food, looking for a shepherd, and you refuse to go after them. This is what Jesus is meaning to address here in John chapter 10. And the Pharisees are so blinded by their self-righteousness, they can't see it. They just can't see it. 
Now, later in Ezekiel 34, before we begin to blame all of the leaders, God has some pretty strong words for the sheep as well. They're not guiltless. They followed. They kept going. So the enemy has made his way in. He's playing with the pieces of political party and religious institution, political power and religious institution. He continues to do that. The enemy, here's the tactic of the enemy. We see this throughout, throughout scripture. He gets in, he wants to get in, in those two ways and here's how he does it. He forces us to, us to question two things about God. First, he forces us to question the goodness of God. If the enemy can get us to question the goodness of God, he has a door in. Go back to Genesis chapter three. God told Adam and Eve they could eat whatever they wanted to in the garden. They just could not eat from this tree in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent comes along who can't create, can only distort, can't create falsehood, can only distort truth to make it false. And he says to Adam and Eve, did God actually say that? That you wouldn't die? It seems to me like he's holding, like if he was really good, he'd let you have this tree too. Look at it. It's a delight to the eyes and it's desired to make you wise. Why, why would God hold out on you in that way? We have to be alert about the enemy. He's gonna begin to try to get us to question the goodness of God. He's gonna ask us to. He's gonna do it for some of us in dry seasons. He's gonna say, if God was good, you wouldn't be here. If God was good, you wouldn't have cancer. If God was good, you wouldn't be going through this. If God was good, there wouldn't be evil in the world. If God was good, you wouldn't be facing a pandemic. If God was good, this. If God was good, that. And on the flip side, he's gonna get us to question the goodness of God by saying, did God get this success for you or did you do it? Because you were the one getting up at five in the morning to work out and then get into the office early to make those deals. It was you. It was you. It wasn't God's goodness. This was you. You did it. You earned this. You deserved this. It's, it's, it's not because of God that you have the marriage you have. It's because you did those five simple steps you read in Cosmopolitan and now you have a really good marriage. It's because you've renewed your sex life. It's because you've done these things. So it's not God's goodness. This is your goodness. The enemy will begin to tear down our belief in the goodness of God. And the second thing he will try to get us to question is the power of God, the sovereignty of God. Because if God was all powerful, would there be this? If God was as powerful as you say he is, would that have happened to you when you were nine years old? If, you, if God was as good as he says he is, then why didn't, if he's as powerful as he says he is, why didn't he intervene in that evil situation? Then he'll flip it and say, it's not God that's powerful, it's you. You're the powerful one. Look at what you've accomplished. Look at what you've done. You're a single mom raising three kids. Look at you. Look at you go. Look at what you've accomplished. Look at what you can show to your ex-husband. Look at what you've done. It's gonna get us to question the goodness of God and the power of God, but he really only has to get us to question one of them. Because if we question his goodness, but hold on to his power, we become legalistic people who believe in the power of God, but don't believe he's actually out for our good. On the flip side, if we believe in the goodness of God, but not the power of God, then we have hippie Jesus. We have a Jesus who loves peace and he loves people and he loves organic things, but he doesn't love, he doesn't have the power to make a difference. All the enemy has to do is get you to question one of those two things. And when he does, it's game on. 
and he moves in. Look at Adam and Eve. Look at Abraham questioning the goodness and power of God. God, you said I would have generations to come after me. Just give me one kid. I just need one. And you haven't given me one. I'll handle this myself. You've got Jonah questioning the goodness of God. In the New Testament, just look at the life of Peter, who the enemy is given permission to sift as wheat, in which he questions the power of God. Church, there is an enemy. It's not a fable. It's not made up. It's not a sci-fi movie. There is an enemy who is seeking only to steal and kill and destroy but he's not, like, he's not like the wet bandits from Home Alone. He's not gonna tell you he's coming. He's not an idiot who's gonna slip on ice downstairs and keep touching the hot doorknob over and over and over again. He's not fooled by the train tracks of silhouettes in the living room. This, the enemy is not him. He's not an idiot. He's not a moron. He has tactics. He is smart and he is subtle and he is patient and he has endurance. He doesn't care how long it takes. He will try to take you down and he will try to take me down. There is an enemy who's here to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus did come that we might have life and have it to the full. We might have it abundantly. We might have it in him. Psalm chapter 23, I wanna end here in Psalm chapter 23. If you'll turn there in Psalm 23, David, who was a shepherd in his own right, David, who had wandered in dry season, some cause of his own sin that he caused. He has faced struggle. He has faced enemies. He has uh, wrestled lions and tigers and bears, oh my, with his bare hands. Like he, he's a man's man. And he plays the harp and he writes poetry and he's a shepherd and he says this about God. In Psalm 23, a Psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd. We're all looking for a shepherd and we're not gonna find him on the NBA basketball court. We're not gonna find him on the billboard top 40. We're not gonna find the shepherd in a political power. We're not gonna even find the shepherd uh, writing Bible studies and leading some kind of conferences. We're not gonna find the shepherd there. Our shepherd is God. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, David says, I shall not want. I lack nothing. When we align ourselves, when as sheep we come under the leadership of God, we don't want, lack anything. I shall not want. I do not want. I'm content in him. I'm satisfied in him. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. In Jerusalem, in the Middle East, um, there's really two rainy seasons. Everything else is just dry, muggy, dusty land. And so a shepherd would move through the arid deserts with his sheep and would bring them to whatever pastures he could find. There's a tradition among shepherds that around noon, uh, shepherds would gather together in a green pasture and they wouldn't make their sheep walk. They wouldn't try to feed them. They would just have them lay down and to rest and be still. David is saying that there is a shepherd who is good and that he leads us out of arid dry seasons, out of, of the dust bowl of life and he leads us to green pastures and he makes us lie down. 
doesn't demand things from us. He just makes us lie down, makes us rest. He leads me beside still waters, not rushing waters that can, that can take a sheep in down the river with it, but still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Then verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not if I do, but when I do, even though I walk. I don't mean this to um, trigger any anxiety in any of you, but we will all walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This word is the valley of dark shadows. It might literally be the shadow of death that you come in contact with closely with. It might be uh, a dark season in your marriage. It might be a dark season in your uh, raising of your kids. It might be a dark season in your childhood. There, we will all, we will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And even though I do, we will fear no evil. We'll fear no enemy. Why? Because you are with me. He hasn't scattered us. He isn't using us uh, as wool for clothing and the fat to feast on. He isn't. He's with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod and staff would have been used to discipline the sheep, but to keep them from falling off of cliffs, to hook them and bring them back, to hit their back legs, to keep them in line. David is saying, they're a comfort to me. Discipline is a comfort to me. But then verse five, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I want that to read, you prepare a table before me away from my enemies. You prepare a table before me with no enemies because you've killed them all. That's what I wanted to say. You prepare a feast, a banquet table before me in the presence of my enemies. So if we can use our sanctified imagination to picture what's happening here. God, the good shepherd, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd in, in John 10. He has led us out of dry, uh, arid land into the green pastures. We've drunk from the still waters. And then he leads us and he walks us to a place where uh, the valley opens up and there's a table full of the choicest fare on it. Ribeye, good drink, Sides that aren't burnt to a crisp and aren't charred, but good ones, good sides, like vegetables that you want to eat, not that your mom's making you eat. Uh, there's, a, there's an ice cream buffet afterwards. There's, it's right there before you. It's a table before you. And Jesus is sitting there to eat with you. And yet around you feels like you're surrounded by the wolves. The enemies are everywhere but it feels like they can't get close, like they're just stuck behind some kind of weird uh, fence, some boundary line they can't get past. And they're, they're looking and they're drooling and it's not the food, it's you they want. And so they're, they're coming after you and Jesus sits you down and he says, right here, eyes here, look at me, look at me. Don't look, no, no, not them, here, you're with me. I'll take care of them, you're with me. You're with me. Yeah, there's wolves. Yes, there are enemies. I'm glad you can acknowledge that they are there, but you are here with me. What do you want? You said medium rare, right? You want this medium rare? 
Yeah, there are enemies. Yes, there is an enemy. There is a thief seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And yet our good shepherd says, come eat with me. I will satisfy your soul. Come here. And we're prone to bounce our eyes and we see the wolves and we see the enemies. And Jesus says, over here, right here, wake up right here with me. You're with me here. You're safe with me here. You're safe. Not only are you safe, but this food is good. I've prepared a table for you in the presence of your enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Whenever someone would come out of a season of uh, grief and mourning, um, they would often anoint themselves with oil to say, okay, that's over, I'm into a new season. But God is saying, you're not anointing yourself, I'm setting you, I'm bringing you out of that season, I will anoint your head with oil. My cup overflows, there's no end to it. Surely, verse six, surely, goodness and mercy, loving kindness, shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Is there an enemy? Yes, there's an enemy. Seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And he will make his way in through subtle nuance. He will make his way in through making you think that you're serving the good of God and the good of the people, but you're actually just serving your own um, self-serving motivations. You think you're making decisions based on the good of your family because of what you've read in books and what you've heard on podcasts, and yet you are making decisions based on your own selfish desires. Yes, there's an enemy. And we fight the enemy by feasting with the good shepherd. Because the drooling enemy waiting to devour you is frustrated every time you take a bite of that steak. Every time you partake of what the Lord has laid before you at the table, it's a war cry against the enemy. I want this, not you. I want what God has for me. I don't want what you have for me. I've got steak here. I don't want the hot dog. I want the steak. I want this now. And the enemy says, yeah, yeah, but it's really good. And you're like, no, I want this. This is what I want. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Remember, there's a satanic lullaby here. Wooing us back to sleep. Rubbing our back. Playing with our hair. Doing that thing where you move your finger down your baby's nose where they close their eyes. putting the white noise on, trying to figure out what it is that you need, trying to settle you back down. And we're tempted in our alertness, in our awakeness, to try to appease. We search for anything to settle us, to distract us, to uh, appease us, to put us back to sleep. Nothing the enemy has to offer will help. Awake, my soul. Thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. We are not merely safe, we are given life, life to the full. 
We aren't safe just to stay in the pen. We are safe to live life, to go to and fro, to go in and to go out. That's true freedom. The enemy promises life but brings death. He promises you life through political power and religious institution. He promises you life through culture and your own predisposition to things. He promises you life through your own sexual immorality and uh, whatever else you're seeking in the world to appease. He promises you life, but he only brings death because that's the point. He only wants to steal, kill, and destroy But then there's Jesus, the good shepherd who lays down his life. He promises you life through his death. We need to remind ourselves of it. He is good and he is all powerful. And whatever the enemy has to offer you doesn't hold a candle to what the good shepherd has before you in the presence of your enemy. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes as we wrap up today. I don't know um, what season you find yourself in and the enemy has done in each of our seasons is he's tried to get us to question the goodness of God and the power of God. How many of you this morning would say, I feel like I'm in a dry season. I feel like I'm just in the arid desert land. I just, there's no satisfaction for my thirst. There's no water. You raise your hand and say, I feel like I'm in a dry season. I'm in a dry land. I'm, I'm hurting. I'm in pain. I'm struggling. It hasn't gone the way I've wanted it to go. Is there anyone here today who would say, no, just in all honesty, I've been lulled asleep. And I can see where I've been uh, co-opted by the enemy that um, I've I've almost shifted allegiances. I find myself now as a pawn of the enemy instead of a person in the hand of God. I might raise your hand just in boldness and say, yeah, I see that. I see where I've fallen into the devil's evil schemes. I, I see that. Praise the Lord for your boldness. There's, there's a good shepherd who is not going to guilt you because you're maimed who is not going to break your leg because you've wandered off. He's going to bind up your wounds and restore your soul. Church, there's an enemy seeking to kill, steal, kill, and destroy. It's about time that we fight back. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know the good shepherd. You don't have a shepherd leading you. And so you're following whatever leaders you can find in front of you. And they've all left you wanting. They've all abused their power over you. And you question whether or not there is a good shepherd, someone who will lead you that you can trust. There is. The requirement is that you lay down your life, that you admit, I am a sheep in need of a shepherd. I'm a sinner in need of a savior and I believe in the finished work of Jesus on the cross sets me free. And that's where you find salvation. That's where you enter through the door into the sheepfold of Christ. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you that you uh, continue to speak to us through it. And that um, the metaphors and stories from thousands of years ago hold true today. And that's not an accident. That's part of the plan. So I pray that we would trust you, that we would feast with you in the presence of our enemies. Help us to acknowledge the enemy, but to adore you today. In Jesus' name, I pray, 
Amen. Amen. Before you dismiss, I want to give us just a few uh, quick announcements. It's our um, Egg Your Neighbor is still going on, so you've got a week to do that. There's still some more boxes out here in the back hallway. I'd love for you to grab a box and egg your neighbor uh, this week as a way of sharing the gospel, inviting them in uh, to the sheepfold, inviting them in to um, follow the good shepherd. Um, Secondly, tonight is our prayer and worship service. It's tonight at five o'clock. If if you want to feast in the presence of your enemy, come tonight. We're gonna gather and and focus on Jesus Christ. We're gonna pray through holy. We're gonna pray and worship him. We're gonna feast on the finest fare that that Jesus has to offer us. And the enemy will be so frustrated by that, be so incensed by the fact that you would choose that tonight over what you could be doing. You could be watching March Madness. You could be at the lake. And he said, "You, you chose this though. You chose this. Yeah. Yeah, I chose the table before the enemy. That's what I chose today. Just want to invite you to be a part of that. I, I know you'll be blessed by it and encouraged by it. Easter is next Sunday, uh, so we look forward to celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. 9.45 and 11.15 here in this auditorium. Um, there'll be kids and preschool ministries going on. And so sixth grade through up, you can be in here. If you want to bring your kids in here, you're more than welcome to. We're going to continue studying in John, but Jesus is the resurrection and the life sneak peek is that the resurrection isn't an event. The resurrection is a person in the person of Jesus. And then we have a men's event coming up. Is that next, Kyle? April 18th, a men's event coming up 4 to 6 p.m. over in the student cafe. Love to invite you um, to that, to be a part of that. If you're a man, it's a men's event. So love to invite you for that. And men, that's a great cry, a battle cry against the enemy uh, to gather together and seek uh, the glory of God and the good of your brother. And Last thing, uh, if you want to text this number up here, I'm going to give you a number to text. Uh, many, we, we don't do bulletins anymore. We just a lot of things that we're having to move and shift and move around. And so we have a weekly newsletter that goes out. And I know if you're like me, you were unaware of that. So I want to invite you to um, text weekly to that number, 678-671-5440. And you can uh, register to be given that weekly email. You'll get it. I think it comes out on Fridays usually. Way to keep in touch with what's going on in the life of our church um, I think we miss that sometimes. There's only so much we can announce. So I wanna invite you uh, to text that. Also, this week, we have a reading plan going through Holy Week. So if you're looking for something just to stir your affections in this week, to root you in this week, leading to Jesus' death and resurrection, you can text reading to this number, 678-671-5440, and you'll get um, a link sent to you for a reading plan this week. We'd love for you to journey with us this week as we journey through each day um, towards the resurrection. Sometimes it helps us to root ourselves in that and not just celebrate some random Sunday, to celebrate something um, that gives us life and truth. Uh, If you came prepared to give today, we'd love for you to give as an act of worship. There are men outside um, with baskets. If you came prepared to give physically, you can do that. You can give online or give through our app as well. If you'll stand, I'll give us the benediction from Hebrews chapter 13. Just wanna read this over you as as we go. Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. May grace and peace be with you. You are dismissed. We love you. Have a great week.